the Future Proof Podcast from Newstalk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. Or you can text us for 30 cent 53106. All of those comments uh, go into the podcast, actually. Yeah, you can listen and subscribe for free in the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. Coming up on this week's programme, what role does testosterone play in our behaviours and our personalities? First, though, the week's science news and joining us via the internet is double Dr. Lara Duncan and from UCD, Dr. Shane Bergen. You're both very welcome. Congratulations, Lara, on bringing another child into the world. I know. It's exactly what we need in the world, isn't it? More people. I was <laughs> that's that's what everyone's that. saying. Some, uh, someone said in the chair, the best thing you can do for the environment is not have another child. And I was wondering to myself, can I give one back? Would that be, would that work that way? <laughs> It depends what way you want to do it. But yeah, sure, why not? Yours are cute. Someone will take them off your hands. Understanding that some people are frying their breakfast, uh, Lara, and keeping that in your mind as you answer this question, how was everything? How did it all go? Do you know what? It was actually great. Baby number two is very different to baby number one. So anyone out there who's pregnant with baby number two, it's actually going to be okay. It was all fine. He's a lovely little baby. Giant. He's a, He was 10 and a half pounds. So apparently he's the 99.4 centile which means that only 0.6% of babies are fatter than him, which is, I suppose, reassuring. Fat is is the wrong word. Don't fat shame your weak old baby. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Fair. Listen, congratulations. And I hope it all goes very well for me. I mean, it's all done now. The rest of parenting is a doddle, as I can tell you. Easy. It's a walk in the park now. Two young boys. Uh, All right. uh, Let's get going, shall we? Uh, And uh, I suppose you're welcome as well, Shane. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Let's kick off our first story. And if we can't all agree at the bare minimum that a giant comet the size of Mount Everest hurling its way towards planet Earth is not a good thing, then what the hell happened to us? Lara, it has to do with um, a whole rake of new plants, some very beautiful and some named after Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, so I suppose the reason this hit the news is because um, the scientists in the Royal Botanic Gardens um, in Kew over in the UK have named a new plant that they found in a rainforest in Cameroon after Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, Obviously, he's just recently starred in in the the Netflix movie Don't Look Up, which is a satire on um, climate change. For anyone who hasn't watched it, um, I can't decide whether to to recommend it or not. I found the first hour actually really slow and then loved the, the bit after that. But the whole idea is really interesting. And Leonardo DiCaprio has been a a massive activist in terms of climate change, deforestation, and um, a huge amount of the issues with um, with the the climate that we have at the moment. And there is a a forest um, in Cameroon called the Igbo Forest, and it's home to indigenous people called the Bannon people. Um, And there's an awful lot of flora and fauna there that that don't grow anywhere else in the world. There's, There's gorillas, there's chimpanzees, there's forest elephants, there's a huge amount of threatened plants. And a new tree um, that was found there, they've named Uvariopsis DiCaprio. Um, and it's named directly after Leonardo DiCaprio. It's a little evergreen plant, um, a tropical evergreen plant with glossy yellow flowers. Um, and it's a member of the this family of plants that I can never say. I, I think it's Lang Lang, but it's, it begins with a Y. But anyway, I'm sure Shane will know exactly <laughs> how to say it, but I'm going to go with Lang Lang. Um, so it's kind of a, a little shout out to Leonardo DiCaprio. There's, there's actually still hundreds of plant species discovered every year. Um, that have never been um, seen before. And they believe that there are still thousands of 
plant species out there and, and potentially, you know, far more even fungal species out there that have still to be discovered. But the sad truth is that pretty much every time a new one is discovered, it's already to be put on the endangered species list. So this is again. I guess, yeah. I mean, the thing is, if, if, if you've just discovered it, there can't be that many of it. Exactly. And that's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, there was 16 new species of orchid discovered in Madagascar there last year um, and three are already thought to be extinct in the wild, which is pretty, you know, but I mean, I suppose the point is that they are very rare anyway, and that's why they haven't been found. So, you know, it's It's a good news, bad news story, really. Exactly. Yeah. But it is, it's a lovely story that there are new plants being discovered all the time. And I suppose it's, it's great to honor people who are also climate activists as well. It's like, um, look, we found something beautiful. Yay. It's, it's gone. Yeah, oh. exactly. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. I, I'm I'm curious as to why you think Shane uh, is um is is knowledgeable about Chinese horticulture, but I, I'm I'm also very impressed. Shane, do you know how to pronounce Lang Lang? No, it isn't. Isn't that the uh, musician? <laughs> I actually I thought Shane would know. He just seems to be kind of a worldly gentleman. But actually, it turns out Jonathan was the one who no. knew how to say it. Who no, knew? I'm just, I'm just blagging. I'm just an expert <laughs> blagger. Um, Shane, our second story uh, has to do with this amazing um, sort of crypt of mummies in Palermo I'd never heard of. Yeah, it, it this creeps me out big time. So in, in Palermo in Sicily, where it's very dry, there is um, a crypt and it's full of, of, of mummified bodies. There's 1,284 of them. It's, it's seemingly it's a tourist attraction um, and it's there a long time. And 163 of the mummies are children. Mm. And um, like they, some of them look very childlike. It's very freaky that anyone would have wanted to, I suppose, preserve their, uh, their dead child in this way. But people did. And um, they were that was done between 1787 and 1880. And it started when the monks uh, were moving uh, some of their, their deceased. And when they dug them up, they found that lots of them were preserved. So there was a natural mummification. And so they thought it was somehow an act of God. And so uh, a decree went out that anyone in the village or, or the city could be buried in this way. And so over a thousand people opted to do it. And they're adorned in jewels and clothes to, to look as alive as possible. And people would regularly go and visit them. Um, so now there's there's a study to, to learn about the health uh, development and social identities of these mummified children, because their their names, their personalities, their history is, is long gone. And mm. so um, whilst there is some level of, um, uh, of sort of archival knowledge, there's nothing at an individual level. So scientists are going to go with x-rays, portable x-rays, in a completely non-invasive uh, way and look at uh, 41 children. And they're going to take 14 uh, x-rays of each mummified child and try to learn about them. Um, mm. So they're, they're putting together the archival with the with the, the x-rays and sort of biocultural approach. Um, very, very creepy. It's it's the beginning of, of this I'm study. I'm sure archaeologists are shouting at you going, there's nothing creepy about this. This is, you know, society preserved. It's an opportunity to learn about the past. This is an amazing scientific... And you're, the physicist is like, this is creepy. Uh, I, I do I, I do think um, it, it, even just the crypt and how they're, how they're sort of on display at the moment, it, it is it is a bit unsettling. Have a look on our Twitter page. You'll see a photograph of, of, um, of these uh, these. Uh, child corpses arranged almost as um, dolls on a shelf. Isn't that right, um, Shane? They, they, yeah. They are, 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 are very unusual, but we don't know anything about them really about or, or why they were chosen to be buried in this way. 
No, and perhaps the thing that struck me most was that child mortality is something we we don't really have that much anymore. Like, thank God, you know, Uh, but but it isn't that long ago that a a sizable proportion of all children died before the age of five. And that's reflected in this crypt here. So of the 1,200 people, 163 of them are children. Now, they do think there may have been some sort of social class element to being buried or to being preserved in this way. But it, but it is quite striking that there there are children there. It reminds us that thanks to science and technology, children don't die that much anymore. Uh, Lara, our third story um, has to do with getting old and and surviving past your neighbours. Yeah, so this is a study um, that was published based on a really really large study called the Long Life Study, um, and it's it was done in the US and it looked at one hundred and sixty one thousand women. And um, what this study has done is it's pulled out just over 5,000 of these women to look at um, a couple of different things to assess for all-cause mortality. So this is one of the things that papers and and researchers look at to see if somebody has essentially died after a certain amount of time. And if they have or haven't died, then they make, um, you know, they do their statistics based on it. So um, this is an interesting paper in one way. And another way, I think it's a, a really um, interesting lesson for, for reading scientific papers. So the, the headline is, um, and, and I'd be very clear that this is the headline, if uh, women have lost weight, so these are elderly women, so they're all over 65, the average age is 79, um, and if they've lost more than 5% of their body weight in a five-year period, they are more likely to die, 66% more likely to be dead at the end of the five-year period. Um, and if they gain weight, then they there is no change to their all-cause mortality. Um, and then the other headline is that the stronger they are, so they measured grip strength, you know, balance, their ability to get up out of a chair, um, they are more likely to be alive and significantly more likely to be alive at the end of the five-year period, 71% more likely in the ones who had the strongest um, strength and balance. Um, and, and this is already interesting, but the headline is going to be women don't need to lose weight to stay alive. And, and that's what the headline has been. And actually, it's really interesting because as soon as I saw this, I was like, look, this there's no way that this is accurate because I have done geriatrics an awful lot in my medical career. And I know that when women who are that age lose 5% of their weight, it's almost always associated with a bad thing. So it's yeah. who has a chronic disease. Very, very rarely can people lose 5% of their body weight anyway, certainly not at that age and usually not intentionally. Um, and that, so I looked into the paper and it's really interesting because it shows that they did control for chronic disease, but they controlled for it 14 to 18 years before the study. So before the beginning of the study, they checked to see if the people had diabetes, chronic heart disease. And if they didn't have them then, that was it. That was good enough for them. And it was considered to be controlled for. And, and that's not good enough. That's not good enough science. So you because know, they could have they could have gotten cancer. Absolutely. Um, now, and if they get cancer, them, they did take all people with cancer out of the right, study okay. completely. But, but I mean, it's exactly like you're saying. There are so many other diseases that cause weight loss, and I think it's really important to note that this this isn't the the headline is not correct. You know, so it is still recommended that people who are overweight can lose weight. And also, the reason I would assume that the people who gained weight didn't die more readily is because they didn't have long enough for the the outcomes of the weight gain to affect them. So the increased blood pressure, cholesterol, things like that, because they were already quite elderly. So, but but grip strength is really important. So the stronger you are, the more likely you are to survive, I suppose, is a good take home message. Yeah. So um, a regular exercise, um, obviously, even into your elder years is, is a good idea. Um, uh, Shane, our final story is about a cool rock. Yeah. Dave Mowite, uh, named after a guy called Dave Mow, 
um, a researcher, which is great. Um, and it comes from deep within the earth. And I, I don't know if you guys remember your junior cert geography books as well as, as I do. For some reason, this is imprinted in my in my brain. I had a great geography teacher. And I, I know that below our feet, the, the, the earth is not homogenous. So there's layers. So there's like the crust and then you go below. But all these different layers mean that it's it's not a kind of a just one type of rock the whole way down. There's different elements and different minerals down there. And what they found here is a brand new uh, mineral that comes from deep within the mantle. And uh, it's, it's called calcium silicate uh, peroscovite or uh, C-A-S-I-O-3 for the chemists listening. And it was it's, it's unquenchable. So it, it normally wouldn't be stable uh, outside of that high pressure environment of the low mantle. But it came out of there encased in a diamond. And this diamond uh, was, was taken from the uh, Europa Kimberlite pipe in Botswana. It was sold in 1987 by a dealer to the California Institute of Technology. They, they were interested because it had an inclusion in it, a, a flaw. And so jewelers wouldn't, wouldn't want it because of the flaw. But the geologists love that because they're able to look at it. And so they used x-rays, just like the other story, high energy synchrotron x-ray diffraction to look at the, the chemical structure of this mineral. Um, and they, they know that it, it, it's, it's a cage. It can carry up. Uh, elements from from deep within the mantle, um, rare earth metals, rare for a reason at, at at the surface, but not so rare down deep in in the mantle. And so there's a whole new um, it's it's a whole new uh, way of looking at things. It tells us about what's down there. I suppose those who are interested in mining might be dreaming of getting their hands on these rare earth metals uh, to, to to build technology. But um, a little bit of depressing news. I, I over over New Year's, I happened to talk to a good friend who's in computer science, who told me that a huge amount of the market for chips and rare earth metals is being uh, used at the moment to mine for Bitcoin. So it's not going into smart technologies or or anything like that. It's just there to mine this uh, this currency. So I, I, wait, I know, wait, wait. I, you're saying the stuff that we're mining uh, from the ground in real life is being then used to mine virtual currencies yes that isn't right it's just, they it's, are it, technically and, real but. and its only purpose is to make money for people that's it there's no other benefit okay exactly. very quickly is there anything uh, um useful or, or interesting about this mineral except for the fact that it it wouldn't exist on on the earth um, outside outside of that pressure well from a scientific point of view these things do tell us how the the mantle of the earth remains so hot and of course this was this was a hot topic back in the 19th century when we were trying to figure out how old the earth was and we thought that it would have a steady state of cooling it didn't because of um, radioactive isotopes within and that meant that the earth was an awful lot older than we thought it was uh, shane bergen and lara duncan thanks very much all right, on the way, what exactly does testosterone do to our bodies? Now, testosterone is getting a lot of attention these days, whether it's concerning its use as a performance-enhancing drug or in relation to hormone therapy for transgender people. So to get a better understanding of this hormone and the role it plays in our lives, I'm joined now by Dr. Carol Hooven. She's lecturer and co-director of undergraduate studies in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. And she's also author of a new book called The Story of Testosterone, the Hormone that Dominates and Divides Us. Welcome to the program, Carol. What is testosterone? 
Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I think there's really good reason for testosterone to be getting so much attention uh, in general, and in particular right now, because it's relevant to so many of the issues that we're dealing with as a society. And people have a lot of stereotypes in their mind about what testosterone is. Um, but what it really is, is a chemical messenger, uh, a hormone that is designed by basically sexual selection to help animals reproduce. So there are other hormones and um, other adaptations that really are designed to help us survive. But the kind of ultimate goal of evolution is reproduction to get our genes into the next generation. And male and female animals, humans included, especially in mammals, have really different needs and strategies that they use to maximize their ability to reproduce. And so we have different kinds of chemical messengers. We have different levels of hormones. Males have much more, you know, at least 10 to 20 times as much testosterone as females do, who have very low levels of testosterone and uh, high levels of estrogen that is in uh, puberty. But males, human males, have high levels of testosterone in their prenatal phase and even a little bit right after birth uh, for a short time. They also have very high levels of testosterone. And of course, they have high levels in puberty. And what the hormone does is ultimately coordinates the physical ability to reproduce with the behaviors necessary to do that. So it acts on the body and the brain to promote reproduction in males. And so in utero, it helps to develop the reproductive system. So it kind of lays down the body plan uh, that will develop later in puberty, but it also lays down a kind of brain plan. Uh, and that's what happens early in development, prenatally, again, with the little boy's testicles producing uh, high levels of testosterone, which was weird for me as a mom pregnant with a boy to know that his little testes inside of me were producing high levels of testosterone. So it kind of sets up uh, the plan for the body and brain. And then you don't, then testosterone just lays low and the testes don't produce a lot in childhood, but you can see the effects that have already occurred on the brain in the behavior of little boys, which is much more physical than it is for little girls. And then those effects on the brain and body are further elaborated in puberty, also by testosterone in really close interaction with the environment. And sex and sexual desire is kind of upregulated and the reproductive system is also. You're laying a lot on the, on the doorstep of poor testosterone. Um, I mean, normally when we talk about the brain, we talk about um, this mix of different signals and different systems and how it's so complicated, but the way you describe it, a hormone plays a leading role in aggression and reproduction. What, what is the evidence that we see for that? How do we, how do we come to that conclusion? Yeah, I would say it plays a major role if you're looking across populations and cultures and times, and you're making comparisons with non-human animals, and you see the same effects of the hormone on behavior that, you know, where in animals, if you deprive male animals of testosterone in prenatal uh, development or around that natal period, they're not going to show high levels of aggression or male typical sexual behavior. So we know that even depriving animals of that early exposure dramatically changes behavior. And we also have some evidence that's much more indirect, of course, because we can't do those experiments in humans. But what we know about humans and 
differences in exposure to testosterone in utero uh, are very are totally consistent with what we see uh, in non-human animals. So why is aggression bound in to this process? What has aggression got to do with reproducing? So I'm so glad you asked that question because it allows me to say that evolution doesn't like to waste energy and it's going to help testosterone helps males reproduce as efficiently as possible. Aggression is a strategy that many male animals, including humans, and in particular our evolutionary ancestors, it's a strategy that helped them reproduce because in order for males of many animals to reproduce, they needed to compete with each other for opportunities to mate with females. So you've got one hormone that regulates sperm production, the the physical ability to reproduce. So sperm production, larger muscles, larger body size, high libido, and a tendency or proclivity to compete with other males to the right uh, for the right to do that. And in a modern human society, that's going to play out in very different ways. That competition doesn't always have to be physical. In fact, today it's usually not physical, but we still see testosterone potentially fueling these other ways of competing for status among males. Uh, but ultimately, I believe uh, that there's lots of evidence that aggression, physical aggression in humans and non-human animals, the higher levels of aggression in men is a reproductive strategy ultimately fueled by testosterone. So um, talking about culture, um, obviously how someone is brought up, if they're brought up in a violent environment, we know that that is more likely to, to lead to violence. If, if we take away the testosterone question, if, um, children who are naturally born uh, male but have lower testosterone or in girls who are brought up in that violent environment, is, is violence mu much less likely because it's just cultural? Is testosterone a much stronger actor in this play? Okay, so that's a good question. And the only way that I can answer that, uh, because the only kind of research we have that would answer that is looking at people say with XY chromosomes and testes who are raised essentially as girls or who identify as female or have a female phenotype or uh, girls who XX people who have ovaries typically um, who have high levels of testosterone in utero. And we do see that there are some differences in that girls who are exposed to more testosterone tend to have more male typical patterns of behavior on average relative to uh, girls who have typical female levels of testosterone, but, and you know, and they might have more rough and tumble play. So that's something nice. that boys have higher levels of. And those girls who have a condition called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, where they're producing unusually high levels of testosterone in utero, they do tend to play more like boys, which is a little bit rougher, but there isn't any evidence that shows that they're more physically aggressive as adults. And one thing I should mention is that physical aggression in males is not the norm. So most men are not typically physically aggressive. What's interesting to me and important to me are the extremes of male behavior, where we see high levels of things like murder and sexual assault and other kinds of physical aggression that we need to understand and address. So that, in my view, is testosterone mediated, uh, along with 
and uh, permitted by certain uh, cultures where there aren't strict laws or there aren't norms that scale back the expression of that behavior. But we just do not see females committing anywhere near the rates of murder or sexual assault or even any kind of physical aggression. And uh, But so in think, those women that do, are there elevated testosterone levels typically? There's no evidence for that that I right. know of. Okay. And um, what's important, I should just say, is not individual differences among men in testosterone level. The different, the important difference is these huge whopping difference in, differences in testosterone level between men and women that men have, again, 10 to 20 times the level of a typical women. And there's a huge gulf in testosterone level between the sexes. And I do think it's that lifetime exposure interacting with our culture that kind of lowers the bar for the expression of physical aggression uh, in men. So you also spoke to a number of um, transgender people who were um, experiencing either transitioning or had already transitioned to another gender. And I'm wondering um, if you can tell me a little bit about um, what you learned from those conversations with them, because biological determinism is one of those topics that is like nuclear waste on on the uh, on the internet it is just absolutely a a, a very very delicate issue uh, that's that's discussed very rarely um calmly on, on the internet it seems to me what what did you find and what were you hoping to learn from from uh, transgender people again i uh, that this is a great question i think the research on the experiences of transgender people who move from uh very low levels of testosterone, so female typical levels that they experienced when uh, living as girls or women. So they have that experience and then they transition to male typical levels of testosterone. And we can ask how their experiences, we can look at how their experience in the world changes after their testosterone levels change, but even before their bodies change. And before I tell you about that, I just want to comment on biological determinism. We know that humans are complex creatures that interact with their environment and that all behavior is a product of gene environment interactions. There's no case in which, or the very very rare cases in which any particular gene or hormone or neurotransmitter determines any complex behavior. So we just have to get rid of uh, that idea. And as far as the experiences of transgender people who change their hormone levels, this has been one of the most uh, eye-opening areas of research for me. And also since I've published the book and talked to more transgender people about their experiences. And I should just say, everybody's experience is different. So there isn't one experience that's typical, but there are experiences that people have on average that are supported by the scientific literature. The most prominent change your listeners can probably guess for people who have almost no testosterone and then go to having male typical levels of testosterone. The most prominent change is libido and sex and the way that they view uh, the sex that they're attracted to. So if right. a, a female takes male typical levels of testosterone, even before her body masculine, at this point, sorry, his body uh, masculinizes, from the anecdotes that people have told me, again, fairly well, uh, fairly consistent with the scientific literature, is that uh, libido increases 
in a way that is sort of mind-boggling and even sometimes disturbing to the natal female who's now taking high testosterone, they hadn't really appreciated the intensity of male sexual desire before taking high levels of testosterone. It's right. not only the desire, but it's the way that they feel attraction towards, and I'll, I'll just say women in this case, which is when they were living as women, sometimes as lesbians, they would be attracted to somebody's personality and they might uh, be attracted to them physically, but it was within the context of uh, some kind of relationship with them. Uh, part of the greater whole. It wasn't a lust thing for the most part. You know, there might've been lust, but it was uh, an attraction to the whole person. Uh, and then after they took testosterone, especially in the first couple years, when it's something like a male puberty, they described to me becoming obsessed with women's body parts and this, to me as a woman, uh, was profound that they changed their hormone levels and they changed the way they're interacting, their sense of attraction. And they started viewing uh, women and they described being obsessed with women's breasts, women's butts, you know, women's um, yeah. physicality. And that the kind of relationship part came second. So that to me, was they became they became opening. teenagers essentially. That's right, but that goes away. You know that it doesn't go away, but that does mellow out over time. But I thought that was eye opening. And then yeah. if you transition in the other direction, you experience the people describe experiencing kind of a decline in libido and a greater access to emotions, more emotional range, more crying, um, and uh, more attraction to the whole person. But again, experiences vary and. Uh, but this was what what I've learned uh, are co- very common experiences. It sounds to, to me that a lot of the, the things that we didn't know, but certainly felt that um, <laughs> that men uh, who are more masculine um, uh, probably have higher levels of testosterone or probably more aggressive, uh, probably less emotional and probably have a higher sex drive. That's the sort of cliche of the so-called alpha male. It seems that the science sort of bears that out a bit. Yes, but with the caveat that it's not just the alpha male, because relative to females, all those adjectives that you just use describe men. And it's most, you know, men want to be, many men want to be the alpha male, but those who can't be the alpha male still have those same feelings on average. Um, And I think testosterone has a lot to do with it. It's a, a really interesting book that kind of tells, as I say, these really interesting stories of of, of personal lives. It also um, explores the role of this hormone in our bodies and in culture. It's called Testosterone, the story of testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. It's by Carol Hooven. Dr. Carol Hooven, thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. 